This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by Jake Cohen on The Rabbi's Husband. Jake is a chef, a food writer, and a culinary influencer, where he is now the editorial and test kitchen director of The Feed Feed, which is the largest social media-driven food publication. He is working on his first cookbook, Jewish, that's with a dash in the middle between Jew and Ish, which will be published, God willing, in the spring of 2021. You can check out his site, wakeandjake.com. And the food looks so astonishingly good, um, not only in each individual form, but in its variety. And this is from pancakes to ice cream to turkey and to steak. And Jake, I don't know if this is intentional, but everything there looks kosher. I mean, it's funny because that, that that comes up a lot. And I think there's this, and we'll, we'll, we could dive into that very much. So well, let, let's do it. So, so before yeah. we dive in, let's talk about Jake's chosen passage. So, um, which was uh, interesting and appropriate, which is, uh, so if you have a Bible open, turn to... Um, Exodus 16.5, which is the, one of the portions, I believe the first portion about manna. And it shall be that on the sixth day, when they prepare what they will bring, it will be double what they pick every other day. Yeah. So, uh, so Jake, uh, tell us, uh, why is that passage uh, uh, meaningful to you? I think there's really one word that talks to me in this passage, and that's the concept of preparation. And it's about the preparation of Shabbat. And it can be seen very much so traditionally in this concept of you're preparing, you're you're collecting double the amount of manna to make sure that the Sabbath is this day of rest. And I see it completely different. I see it as this way of, it's more so creating this moment around Shabbat, this moment around preparation. And while, yes, you can totally reflect the tradition around not working on Shabbat, not lighting the flame, all that stuff, that is not how I practice Shabbat. How do you you practice Shabbat? I practice in a very modern way in the sense of, I think it is about gathering friends, family, creating this moment for reflection, gratitude, introspection, and hospitality. So to me, that that concept of preparation ties so much to my history in the food world and this concept of mise en place, which is this French culinary term to put in place, which which is truly about the the preparation, the ergonomics around around a kitchen space of how you're going to make sure you have a successful dinner service at a restaurant. But there's really no difference between that and my concept of preparing Shabbat. And that means that I am making sure that I am ordering the groceries, preparing the food, setting the table, inviting the guests, making sure there's enough wine. These are all preparations that I do to create the space that can be conductive to conversation, reflection, relaxation at the end of the week and creating a moment of kind of gathering and breaking bread that is so traditionally Jewish. It's this Jewish ritual that most people I host would not celebrate on their own. And I'm creating a space and preparing a space in which they're able to do it in a way that fits their lives. Well, that's, that's magnificent. There's so much there to unpack. Um, first, it's um, in the Jewish tradition, every mitzvah needs to have a preparation. 
So if we think about the mitzvah of celebrating Pesach, there's so much preparation that goes into that. In fact, yes. days of preparation, but every mitzvah, almost definitionally, um, a mitzvah is something that requires preparation. So there has to be preparation for every mitzvah. And the way you look at Shabbat through the lens of hospitality is the way that God looks at the Jewish people in Genesis 18.5 is when he effectively anoints Abraham. It's when Abraham interrupts his conversation with God to greet his guests thus introducing the concept of hospitality and thus qualifying Abraham to really receive the covenant. Yeah. And, and there's, it's funny because there is this understanding of it in so many aspects of media. When we think about like the, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel or, or mm. all of those aspects of like how Jewish hospitality is portrayed to the world. And typically it's in this kind of lens of humor. I, I, a lot of times I go back and I reference the Seinfeld episodes in, in which my, my favorite scene is this one in which George, uh, George is introducing his parents to his girlfriend's parents and they come over and they bring this marble ride that doesn't get put out and the father takes it back and they're in this car talking and the mother is saying, who puts out coffee without a piece of cake? We're sitting there like idiots drinking coffee without a piece of cake. And it's that concept of this is always on our mind. Every step of the way, every second of the day, it is about how do you kind of extend hospitality? And it's always around this kind of concept of what are we eating? Exactly. Hospitality is essential to what it means to be a Jew. And the phrase you are what you eat may be a modern phrase, but it's a Torah idea. I mean, all throughout the Torah, we see example after example of either you are what you eat or you become what you eat. In fact, the lens of kosher can or the laws of kosher can only be explained through that lens. So all uh, carnivorous animals are unkosher. So if you fill yourself by eating other animals, we can't eat you. It's, it's unkosher. We can only eat animals that have a split hoof and that chew their cud. In other words, that have part of their foot touching the earth and part of their foot touching the heavens, and they chew their cud, they ruminate, they think. These are the only animals that are kosher. In fact, some of the birds that are unkosher, so why is the kite bird unkosher? There's nothing that would inherently make it unkosher, except it has great sight. We think, well, sight should be great, except we know what it does with its sight. It finds carcasses and goes and eats the carcasses. So it uses its sight to find dead things. Thus, can't eat that. So you're absolutely right. So much of what it means to be a Jew involves what we eat and how we eat. These rules and laws are not arbitrary, but they're actually deeply meaningful. We just have to try to understand them. Correct. I will say, just to kind of tie back to the, this being thing, I am not kosher. I think that the conversation around Jewish food and kosher law and the way that the two intersect and then also shift and evolve, and it's something that you can't be a Jewish food person and not also understand. It's like, a Reuben is Jewish and it is not kosher. Well, is a Reuben inherently unkosher? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's what, what's in a Reuben? Meat and Swiss cheese. Okay, meat, so yeah. I would I would argue um now most people like 99% would agree that meat and cheese is unkosher. That being said, if we go back to the canonical story of Abraham greeting the guests in 18:5, what does Abraham serve his guests? He serves them an ancient cheeseburger. It's it's milk and meat together right there inarguable in the text. People who say that milk and meat together is unkosher. They really have to wrestle with and explain that. And they have all kinds of ways to do it. But I look at the text and milk and meat is served together at the 
original meal of Jewish hospitality, and it is milk and meat together. It is the original. It's a cheeseburger. So I'm going to say a Reuben is is for for I'm the rabbi's husband, which gives me with my full authority as the rabbi's husband. A Reuben is kosher. Amazing. As long as, as, long I as, love as the it. meat's kosher. Oh yeah. There you go. There you go. So I think in that conversation, what is and even like the the hundred most Jewish foods, the the book by by Tablet. Um, oh, I have the whole. It. Oh, it's it's a wonderful book, kind of going through everything, and then a huge conversation is like bacon as a Jewish food. This concept of the loopholes that we make as a people, and the family members that people have that are kosher, but they'll mix milk, milk and meat. But if they're outside of the house, they'll have bacon. Oh no, no pork chops, no pork tenderloin. But bacon is okay. Uh, there are always like these exceptions where I've had like my husband's uncle who who is who is like. You eat pork like that's that's terrible. But he eats shrimp and he loves shrimp, and it, it, it's like everyone. Well, makes- all right, now that, that's that's very interesting. Have you have you asked him? I mean, there is never it, it, there is never a reason. It's just that is the way they have done it, or that's the way they grew up. Like because you parents- know, I, I could interpret milk and meat as being kosher, with which almost everyone's going to disagree. But I I think I'm right. Whatever. There's no way anyone could say shrimp is kosher. So did you ask your husband's uncle? Okay, like I hear you on bacon and pork. But I'm I'm asking you about you and shrimp because it's interesting how people come to these rules by themselves. So, what do you think he would say? The I mean, the answer is is typically it's like that's just how they grew up. It was the same conversation about his parents because my mother in law always talks about the family and and what they they ate and it was that there was bacon. Bacon was the exception that her father loved, but the mother was more religious. And this comes up a lot. Same thing in my family in the sense of my grandmother and my grandfather, where my grandmother came from this very religious family uh, in Europe. And my grandfather did not. So you saw this blending of two families. And most of the time, it, it's the traditions then skew towards not kosher. Right. And, and I think um, certain foods like bacon and shrimp are definitely unkosher. But even putting that aside, I think the, the, the principle of you are what you eat. You know, what we do as Jews when we when we deem a food to be kosher is we're basically um, elevating the material to something sacred. And, and we're saying like, like, this is a special moment when we're able to eat and enjoy this sustenance and the thriving that can come from it. And, and we're really gonna think about our food and think about the gratitude that we owe when given that food. I mean, think about a cow. It's incredible. I mean, a cows are born at like 80 pounds. They get to be about 2000 pounds. I mean, imagine if you had a machine that consumed grass and produced steak and hamburger <laughs> and to fill in and, and milk. I mean, you think that this machine is unbelievable. Like the, 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 the inventor of that machine would win the Nobel prize and every other yeah, prize. Yeah, yeah. But it's God. It's like God created the cow. Like a cow is a grass eating machine. Now it also, an, of course, an animal, but it's a grass eating, you know, it eats grass, gets grows from 80 pounds, to 2000 pounds and produces so much for us. Yeah. But I think what you said in the, that concept of creating something sacred, I, personally find that creating a meal, creating an experience around this day of Shabbat and this meal, this special meal is what makes it sacred, which is why I find that the idea, the idea of like having food that needs to be kosher is to me second to having food at my Shabbos table. So the the main thing that is so I mean people get so angry about it. It's like I get very heated messages on, on Instagram, all that stuff is, I think there is nothing that is more important for like 
a huge hospitality moment than this like big cheese board. And I create these huge cheese boards for my guests to arrive. And they, I've become known for them. Who would get angry at that? I mean, there's sometimes prosciutto on it. There is sometimes salami and, and it, it's a conversation. And then in times when it's, I create tier. So sometimes it's like brujola. So, so it's only beef salami, but then it's like mixing milk and meat. So that everyone always finds a reason to get upset about it. And rightfully so, because that's how, if that is how they want to experience and, and celebrate, I think that is absolutely beautiful. And there's that concept of, I truly believe in I, one of my favorite expressions throughout truly any aspect of my expression of Jewish ritual is dayenu. And it, what, whatever you do, it's enough. The fact that you are preserving Jew, the Jewish ritual of Shabbat, that's enough. The fact that you are learning how to make a dish from your great grandmother that she made in the shuttle, like that is enough. It doesn't have to be this, like, you, you don't have to do it all. No, you, you don't have to do it all, but, but you have to do something. You have to do something substantive to qualify for Daniel, which you're doing in that you're, you're doing a sacred task by helping people to love Shabbat. That's a sacred task. I mean, no one should ever get angry at that, whether they agree that you have this on the cheese plate or that on the cheese plate. That is so secondary or tertiary to the fundamental mitzvah that you're doing, which is you're giving people Shabbat. I mean, I, I make the analogy to when um, I started going out to a rabbi's home for Shabbat, Rabbi Shmuley Botech, years ago. And uh, I said to his wife, this is 20 years ago, I said to his wife, when people come to your home on Shabbat, we, we drive there. You know, what, what do you as an Orthodox Jew think? And Debbie said simply, she's like, um, I'm happy you're enjoying Shabbat. Like, let's focus on that. Let's not focus on how yeah. you got here. And in your cases, let's not focus on every single thing on the plate. You're enjoying Shabbat. That's the substance. The rest is commentary. Why get angry over the commentary? Focus on the substance. And I think the thing that really makes it I mean, the most important to myself and my husband. So I come from a traditional Ashkenazi family. He is uh, Iraqi Jewish, but most of his family grew up in Iran. So it, it's these, we come from these two Jewish families, but neither of us grew up with Shabbat. It was something that was not part of our Did your husband grow up in the United States or in Iran? No, he grew up in the, in the, sta- in the States. Okay. His, it was, it's weird because he, he was born in Switzerland, came to Florida when he was young. So it was... He's never been in a very Jewish community. When most of his family is in Great Neck in LA, which have very large Jewish communities. I grew up in Queens, which had a very large Jewish community. Then I moved out to Long Island, which had an even larger Jewish community. But at the same time, it's my concept of, of Jewish tradition where around the high holidays, we were high holiday Jews, where we had Passover Seder, we had a Rosh Hashanah dinner, we had breakfast. Those are the three kind of pillars throughout the year in which we were Jewish. We didn't even, I mean, it was very much so like my sister and I went to Hebrew school twice a week, learned everything, had a B'nai Mitzvah, and then it was like, okay, now you can be done. It was never, there was never even an understanding past like, what is next? Is that you just had to do this to do this, to have that base knowledge, and now you get to choose. And we obviously chose as as 13-year-olds who did not want to have any more schooling. It's like, we're done. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's, that's such a tragedy of kind of modern Jewish life among people who are reform and maybe conservative is that it's like, what, where else would you, a parent or one choose to end his or her education in like fifth grade? Like, yeah. I'm done, like n- nothing more to learn. Like I've, achieved, I've graduated the fifth grade or the sixth grade or the eighth grade and I'm done. When Judaism, it's the Torah is the ultimate guidebook. There's so much to teach. There's so much to learn. You could spend your entire life doing it and conclude that I've barely begun. And yet we stop at 13. Like, 
like we're done. In fact, 13 should be the beginning. Yeah. So I, and, I, and that's why I think it, it's so, and it, this came back to us at a time in which I think that the, the key part of why we turned to Jewish ritual was this concept of community. And it was something that was lacking with us living in New York City. It's a crazy place. We're obviously both like young professionals that aren't incredibly focused on personal lives, let alone Judaism. So the first step we did was like, all right, let's find a temple. Let's let's join a temple. And, and where that proved to not be what we needed because we went to, I mean, the first thing was like, we went to CBST wonderful community, especially like as a gay couple to have to find it, another group of, of queer Jews. It was, it was amazing. And we do high holidays every year. We do Kol Nidre and um, Yom Kippur services at, uh, at central. And it's the, the big to do and the Lincoln center and Rabbi Buckdell sure. is, 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 is like, she speaks to you and you feel like, she's wow, wonderful. she's incredible, incredible. And, and I think we expected like, all right, well then how can we do that? all the time. And we realized that we already had this issue because my husband, I mean, he, he didn't grow up with the same kind of like Hebrew schooling and, and all that stuff. So it's not like he understands any of the Hebrew. It's not like I understand it. I just know it by like rote memory, but we wanted to figure out what was that concept of Judaism and community that we could find. And when I discovered one table, we had been exploring all these synagogues and it wasn't until we like started diving into like, all right, let's figure out how we're going to start hosting Shabbat, how we're going to start building up a community of queer Jews, non-queer Jews, non-Jews, and have it surrounding this Jewish ritual. Well, in, in, in the Haggadah, which of course we read on Passover, it, it says the fundamental principle of Judaism is the community. So yeah. that's the fundamental principle is creating community, which means that everything else better serve the fundamental principle, but it's certainly less important. So it's creating the Jewish community. That's, that's the most important thing. And and uh, food is such an important part of community, particularly Jewish community. And I think, you know, getting to what you're saying before, like a lot of that gets lost in stupid Jewish jokes because it's, it's like it's a deeply profound Torah insight is that community is the most important thing. And food is really at the center of every Jewish community. And it can r- really help us both connect closer to God, connect with our community and help us understand who we really are. Now, along those lines, I was reading about how when you first met your husband's family, how food was an, a, an important aspect in creating that relationship. It involved Passover, the kitchen, some relatives. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Um, I'm actually working on a, a storytelling event where I'm talking about, about Seder, but it, it was this fascinating combination of three families because we have my family, which is Ashkenazi. What is this, like three, three, four years ago or longer? Uh, we've been together for almost six years. So this is okay. the last five, last five Passovers have. Okay. But the, 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 the Passover we're going to talk about was about five or six years ago. It was three years ago. Oh, three and years ago. Okay. The, the concept was like, I have my family that wants me for Seder. I have my husband's family that wants us for Seder. I have my husband's brother's wife's family, who's also Ashkenazi in New York, who wants us for Seder. And everyone does it differently. First, it was the blending of the two Ashkenazi families in which my brisket is very different from their family brisket. Um, and they don't use tomato, which I think is ridiculous. But Wait, you, you do it. use tomato with yes, your brisket? Yes, you, you need to have tomato in your brisket. It sounds good. I never thought of it, but I, I'm with you. Okay. Yes. So then there was that. 
then it's it's going from like Alex had never experienced, my husband had never experienced an Ashkenazi Seder. So he's like, hey, he's gumming down gefilte fish for the first time. He's like, what is this? I love gefilte fish. Um, oh, wait, and- just, just, just one aside. So David Ben-Gurion, when he was founding Israel, said, we will do it even if all we eat is gefilte fish. Love it. So yeah, his archetype for as bad as it can be is life with only gefilte fish. <laughs> into it. I would be, you know what, Dayenu. That would be absolutely. Um, but I mean, I think the thing that shocked him the most was the fact that there are these two nights, these two satyrs in which we do the same thing and we eat pretty much the same meal in the same order. And that is what's expected. And like, if anything is not the same for both nights, people are like, what, what happened? Like, where, what do you mean? There's no gefilte fish. What do you mean? The, the no matzo ball soup. And that was like shocking for him. And then I experienced the, the Mizrahic Seder where we're going around and slapping each other with scallions. And, and anyway, yeah, so, so describe that because I've, I've never seen it, but I find it so interesting when I read about it. So scallions is a kind of fish, right? No, no, no scallions, the like green onions. Oh, the green onions. Right, right. Okay. So, okay. so for Dayenu, you go around and hit each other with, with scallions to represent right. like the, the whips. And, and, but at the same time, it's like they eat rice. So it's instead of the courses and this understanding of like, we have these these Maxwell Haggadahs that that even like course it out based on all right now's the time you serve blank. And by the way, the the um, they're correct about rice. There is no prohibition on rice in the Torah with regards I love to Pesach. It. They're hundred percent right. The Ashkenazi prohibition, which is wrong, came from a, a a moment in history when we couldn't distinguish between bread and rice, and therefore to be careful, we excluded the rice. But it was just a historical anomaly that has absolutely no base in Torah. The Sephardic are just this right. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. And on top of that, like they do it just like this giant buffet. So they have like three types of really? rice and a whole leg of lamb and roasted salmon and all the Persian stews and Iraqi kubba. Uh, and awesome. it, it, it was amazing. So we decided as we kind but, of, but they, they use the traditional Haggadah with, with all of these, these foods. Correct. I mean, well, it, it, it's more so it's, it's a little more free form in the sense of it is right. It, it's not as tied to, I, I don't even know. It's, there's almost like a, a rhythm to a Ashkenazi Seder. Well, that, but 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 I, I think a Seder should be a free-flowing discussion about the nature of yes. freedom around food. So it's with the Haggadah as a guide, but no more yes. than a guide. Yes. And that sounds like that's what they're doing. Yes, exactly. And I think we as we started getting pulled by all fans, like, oh, you're not going to be with us for a second night. Like, oh, we want to see you. You need to come to our Seder. We finally decided and our relationship has become this anchor for these Jewish families blending in which we gathered together and through one giant Seder with everyone together. And that's like where I braised a brisket and I made kubba with, uh, with my husband's aunts and we had Tadik and we had Ashkenazi and Mizrahic Kharoset. Uh, like it, it just became this like some, the, the, the whole is greater than some of its parts. And it, I think it's the best representation of what it means to us to discover our Jewish identity and our Jewish narrative as a queer young couple to have this very non-traditional blended Seder. And, and I, I was reading that, that in the, the first Seder, which you shared as a family, that your uh, way to uh, create a Pesach meal and your husband's family's way to make a Pesach meal and the discussion you had in the kitchen and what you did together re- really helped to build the relationship between the two. A hundred percent. You have to to remember that this is this, and it's very much so the same in any, any immigrant Jewish family in which there is this concept of, of all these diaspora dishes that made its way to the States. And a lot of it is not passed down. 
either because in my, my husband's family sense, it's like, because the older generation still makes it. So there's no need for the for any of him or his cousins to know how to roll kubba because their aunts make it still. Um, but at the same time, and it's the same thing with my family of, of, of my grandmother telling me about the cholent that her mother used to make that we were never exposed to. I didn't know what cholent was until I was an adult because it, it, again, it's another one that's- big. I think it's an anti-Semitic plot. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, but it's rooted in, in, in if you are- But do you like cholent? I mean, I make a very good cholent. It is not- as, it's not a traditional child. Okay. I, I despise it anyway. Okay. <laughs> uh, but the concept was, is like, I took an interest in preserving Jewish recipes. And especially these are these family recipes. These are these recipes that my husband grew up with. And there was nothing that was more meaningful to me than to learn those dishes so that I can make them for him. And again, it became this, this incredibly important aspect of our relationship that got me closer to his family more so than many other outsiders, especially coming in as an Ashkenazi, as, as a gay man, where it's not like the traditional relationship. Um, and we're lucky that we both come from relatively modern families and we've had no issues in terms of, of acceptance, but that's not necessarily the case for many other members of our family. So I think it's, it's I think food was definitely this unifier that and it, as as it always will be in every sense, every religion. Well, every, that's right. Culture. I mean, if the fundamental principle is community. Food has to be at the center, right? Yes. Because of what you're saying, it's a unifier. You can't do community without food. So that 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 really clarifies it um, for me. Uh, now, what's your book about coming out next year? Yes, I mean, I think it's it it really touches on all of this. It's called Jewish, and the concept is it's like it is. Jewish food through my lens, and that is through my modern Shabbat. That is through the blending of an Ashkenazi and Mizrahi family. It is through every sense of what it means to kind of preserve Jewish food and also bring it into the kind of new millennial young world. So how do we make kasha varnishka something that someone would want to make on a Wednesday night? How do we make what? Kasha varnishkas. What's that? Oh, so it's a very traditional uh, Ashkenazi dish of of um, bow tie pasta with with buckwheat groats oh. and onions, and it's like a, a very like interesting a hearty brown food that then like it's transformed and that I make into something that's a little bit more flashy. Or for Passover, how do you make like a, just a? There's typically like the standard you have you have Joyva jelly rings and you have a disgusting flourless chocolate cake. So it's like how do I right. create a very lush dessert section that has completely kosher for Passover recipes that are also like just things that you would want to have. And a lot of it is surrounding around entertaining. A lot of these dishes are all things that I developed throughout my experience hosting these one table Shabbats. And they've been like tested a in an environment in which I've been hosting 10 people for Shabbat. Um, and B, they are inherently Jewish, whether that means that they're using an ingredient that you have never heard of that comes from a different kind of group of the Jewish people that you don't know about, which I think is also important because we live in a very Ashkenormative world um, in America in which you think of Jewish food and you think of deli. And that's great. And, and, and that is a wonderful aspect of culture that we should be celebrating. But at the same time, the fact that, that only now we're talking about Persian Jewish food, Iraqi Jewish food, Yemeni Jewish food, the Yemeni breads like, like Kubana or, or, Malawah, like these are all things that are so ingrained in Jewish community and have made their way into this concept of like Israeli food. 
Israeli food is definitely because of the fact that there was such an immigration from Jews that were expelled around 1950. There is this like representation of those cuisines, not so much in America. So when 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 someone thinks of Israeli food, obviously Israel is a very young country, so Israeli food can't be that old, right? So so when someone thinks about Israeli food, what are they really thinking of? Is it a combination of of what? It is a it is a blending of, of diaspora cuisine. So it's a combination of just dishes of the Levant that have been there for forever that is then blended with like dishes that come from Eastern Europe, that come from North Africa, that come from other regions, and they blend together. A perfect example is sabich. Sabich is is this this very popular pita that is stuffed with uh, fried eggplant and hard-boiled eggs and chopped salad and amba, which is this uh, pickled mango sauce. And it is inherently Iraqi. So it's this kind of Iraqi Sabbath dish that you would have on Saturday morning of like these eggs that have been cooking all night until they are like brown uh, on the outside that you chop up and you eat it with fried eggplant and ambo, which is this, this spicy mango sauce that comes from the fact that Iraqi Jews were so integral in the spice trade with India. Oh. So, so much of the Iraqi Jewish food is, has tamarind, has curry powder, has turmeric, all of these kinds of blendings. Then you come to Israel and they stuff it in a pita and they add on a little bit of tahini, which is not traditional to um, Iraqi cuisine. And it becomes this dish that is kind of Iraqi, kind of this, kind of that, but only really comes to play in Israel. Um, And you could say the same thing with like Jerusalem, Kugel, so many other dishes that take aspects of different cuisines and blend them together depending on what's available in Israel, what are the kinds of interplays of, of, of marriage. I think that's such a huge part of, of the evolution of cuisine. Why my book is so unique is it's like my unique outlook on Jewish food, being someone that has married into an Iraqi Persian family and now can create things that are not necessarily authentic or traditional, but are mine. And that's it. I don't, I'm not trying to, to play. Beautiful. Like, these aren't, these aren't, no, it's ancient Bubby recipes. These it's are the like, creativity that God gave us deployed for the food that's so important to who we are as Jews. That's uh, exactly. And we will include the link to the Amazon pre-order for Jake's book, Jewish, in the show notes. I mean, I think that that was a, so many people. It even like comes down to the challah. That's the thing that I found, especially in this new world with quarantine, that I made challah for some of my larger Shabbats, but most of the time I was like order from Brett's Bakery, get a crazy amount, um, call it a day. Since quarantine started, I've made challah pretty much every Shabbat, and that's just become what I do. And more and more, I'm seeing other people bring that into their lives. And it's that concept in the same way that we've seen banana bread go crazy or people baking sourdough. Challah is a way that someone can create this project for themselves, this meditation, and have it also be reflective of their identity, of this concept of Shabbat, of this concept of of tradition. And more than ever, I'm seeing people who want to know like how to make it, how to braid it, how to like, what am I doing wrong? Why is my challah coming out terrible? How do I become like all these other families that have this rich tradition of making a challah every Friday? And that's been probably my favorite aspect of, of Jewish food that has come to a head during this time. 
Well, uh, Jake, this is such an interesting conversation on so many different levels. Um, now, moving from a, a one text, uh, the Bible, to a very different text. Um, this is always the concluding question. Um, in Andre Malroux's 1968 book, um, Anti-Memoir, he tells a story. He said, I just I ran into a man with whom I'd served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. And he said, I said to the man, Malroux says to the man, uh, the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. One, everyone is much less happy than they seem. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So, Jake, in all of your years in the, um, in the food and culinary worlds, uh, broadly defined, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? I would say that the first thing is everyone's looking to be a student. I think at our core, we are always, I think the, the people that I connect with the most are people that are constantly looking to learn. And that could be anything from a recipe or technique down to a culture. Some of my favorite Shabbats are the ones in which I have, I have Gentiles who had never experienced a Shabbat before, and they get to be exposed to Jewish hospitality, Jewish dishes, Jewish ritual that they never have before. And to me, I think that that is seeing people who want to learn and want to be exposed to other is a, is a blessing within mankind that I always want to focus on. And then I would say the second, the second would be that we don't take care of ourselves enough. Meaning this, I think the one thing that I discovered through Shabbat and that I've discovered through so many people who brought Shabbat into their lives is that the reason that it was so necessary and the reason that it has created such a meaningful impact and become so ingrained into weekly tradition now is this concept of self-care and wellness and how we don't necessarily as a people, especially in this country, especially in major hub cities where you'll find large Jewish communities, take kind of note of like how we're doing at the end of the week, how we are overworking ourselves, not necessarily taking the time to, to check in and understand how we're doing. And that is why I've seen like so many people react so well to this concept of Shabbat. Exactly. I mean, what, what you're describing is exactly the purpose of Shabbat. One of the misnomers of Shabbat is it's about resting is defined by relaxing. Totally not. It says on the sixth day, God ceased in the work he was doing, or on the seventh day, God ceased the work he was doing, meaning he was doing some work in the seventh day, because what else is he ceasing from? So the question is, what was he doing? And he was must have been creating something. He was creating rest, because if rest is just the absence of something, you can't create the absence of something. So if rest was just the absence of work, it wouldn't need to be created. <laughs> you stop working and you get it. But he's creating rest. So what is rest? It's exactly what you say. It's the idea of something purposeful, it's purposeful rest. It's the, it's the idea that you stop what you're doing and genuinely reflect in a community with your family, with your friends, with others that you bring through your human, through your hospitality to how you did the previous week, to who you want to be the, in the subsequent week. And that's what Shabbat's about. And that's what you're bringing so many different people, Jewish and Gentile. And, and interestingly, when I talk with my Gentile friends and even Gentile guests and the rabbi's husband, they always yearn for Shabbat. And I think that's been the best part about One Table when explaining it to people is that it is this nonprofit that is looking to bring Shabbat to every millennial in this country. And it is non-denominational. You do not have to be Jewish to host Shabbat. You do not have to be Jewish to host Shabbat through One Table. And I think that was such an important thing that that resonated with me and resonated with with explaining to guests as they were coming, they're like, well, oh my God, do I have to bring kosher wine? Do I have to do this or that? Am I allowed at the table? Oh God. And, and, and of course, and that's been the, that's been yeah. my favorite 
thing about all of this. And uh, that's what I, I can't wait for what this post-COVID world will, world will look like to continue this work. Yeah, I mean, um, I was in Israel uh, last year with a group called uh, Eagle's Wings, which is um, a millennial evangelical pastors. And uh, they loved every moment of the trip to Israel. It was so special on as every trip to Israel always is, but on every level. Um, and uh, so I asked them, uh, I asked them, several of them actually at the hotel. I said, uh, what's been the most meaningful part of your trip to Israel? And they said, uh, Shabbat dinner. To Shabbat dinner, you can do that at my house uh, in New York. We don't, we don't need to be in Jerusalem for Shabbat dinner. They said, no, that the most special part of this completely special trip was Shabbat dinner. And they explained what Shabbat meant to them. And uh, we have a holiday every week. Every week we have a holiday. That is like, it's it's magical. It's absolutely magical. It's a gift from God. So Jake, thank you so much for such an interesting conversation on so many different levels. My pleasure. You are the God of the if you leave us a breakthrough in the house tonight,